You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in the present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up the treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the light it is into our feet, for the correction that we need, for the encouragement that we need. Some of us are indeed, as we just sang, wounded and weary this evening. Some of us do not feel wounded and weary, but we, pr- we pray that you would reorient our hearts and that we would trust in the power, all the power that is in you through your spirit. Help us to know you tonight even more through your word, by your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this evening. I've met several uh, folks for the first time this evening, so really glad you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are finishing up a many, many months walk through Paul's first letter to his pastoral protege, Timothy. We're finishing up 1 Timothy 6 this evening. Next week, we'll be together, as Clint said, on Easter, and we're going to baptize five folks with a little one-off sermon before. It's going to be a really great time. We hope you can be there for that, and then we'll start Exodus. Yes, uh, the Sunday after that. So here we are. This has been a controversial book. There have been Uh, many coffees and meals with many of you throughout these last many months over this book. Lots of email conversations back and forth, lots of uh, conversations that I've been part of and have heard of in our gospel communities together. I said in the very first sermon way back at the beginning of October that by the end of this book, my hope was that we would not only be okay with what we read and learned from this book, that not only we would be able to just merely stomach it, but that we would love it that we would find 1 Timothy to be so life-giving and indispensable to the life of the church, to the life of 
our life together as the very family of God that we couldn't imagine life without it. Maybe that hasn't happened quite yet for all of us, but it's happened for many of us, and I'm praising the Lord for that, that in his kindness to his church, God has given us guardrails and norms for its flourishing, for its life together inwardly, and for its clear witness to the world outwardly. So we've got a lot to get to, to get to tonight, as you heard Kylie read, so I'm not going to waste much more time on a really snappy introduction or anything. Let's just get right at it, and we'll continue to wrap up this book as we go. Paul is going to frame this, these final instructions to Timothy around three future and present realities, both in his life and in the life of the church and in the life of the world. So this, these three uh, future and present realities will be our outline for our sermon tonight. The, the present ministry of Timothy, the future appearance of Christ, and the future riches of God. So first of all, the, the present ministry of Timothy. Last week, we saw Paul charge Timothy to get out there, to get out into Ephesus, into the Ephesian church, and to charge it to remain healthy. Timothy and the Christians that he is leading are to be starkly different than these false teachers who are influencing the Ephesians, these false teachers who are diseased by unhealthy doctrine, which leads themselves and others away from Christ. They are diseased by unhealthy desires for more and more wealth, the gathering, the acquiring, the holding on to more and more stuff. It is an infection in the church. The church is sick, and Timothy is to get out there with right doctrine, that which God has revealed about himself, that which God has revealed about his desire for the world through the Old Testament, through uh, the teachings of Jesus, and through his apostles. These, this is just the kind of vaccination that the church needs for health and that we need as well. So Paul tells Timothy in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's just spent these the many verses before describing the sickness of the church, but as for you, Timothy, get away from these kinds of things. These are things that we might have been expecting Paul to say. We need to hear this too, don't we? We need to see the areas in our life that are causing us to doubt God's goodness. We need to see the areas in our life that are tempting us to find joy in anything other than him certainly elevating over him, and we need to flee these things. Just straight up get out of there. Like, not dabble in areas of temptation, see how much we can take, but just get out, flee. But as one pastor says, real growth in godliness means more than just trading one sin for another. It means replacing the don'ts with do's. The Christian life is not just about what we are to flee, not just about Uh, what God has saved us from, but it is about what we are to pursue, what God has saved us to. So don't just run. Don't just start fleeing without knowing in which direction you are to run. It's a good impulse. If there is a tornado or a tsunami or something coming, to start running. But you better know which direction you should run. It's not just, just running mindlessly or wildly. You're running with purpose. You're running to a direction that they're in a direction where there is safety and there is life. So flee these things, yes, but then in, in verse 11 next, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. All of these words are words and themes that we've seen play out over the course of this letter before, especially that of godliness. In chapter 1, we're told to lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. Chapter 3, the mystery of godliness is revealed in Christ. Chapter 4, godliness is of value in every way. Chapter 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. We might be able to try to sum up one of the major themes of this letter, maybe even the whole theme of this letter, as chapter 4, verse 7. Train yourself for godliness. The character of God beginning to more and more seep into and becoming the character of his people. But godliness isn't just a living a morally upright life. We're not to read this and just say, all right, I'm going to leave this building and live godly. It is also a life of faith, as he says. Righteousness, godliness, and faith. Not just of saying, you have faith. Not just saying, well, I have my faith, don't I? But faith in what? What does faith mean? It means actually counting on God's promises in the smaller and larger moments of your life, trusting in him. It's a life also not just of faith, but of love. Not just saying that you love God and love others, but actually seeking ways to grow and cultivate your love for him and others, to then actually act in love, asking yourself ongoingly through the day in this small or large situation, what would love require of me right now? What would it look like to love God and love others? It's also a life of steadfastness, not just saying that you are a Christian, not just saying and making commitments in church membership and making commitments in friendship or in marriage or in your love for Christ, but then over the long haul of our lives, actually following through in faithfulness to these commitments. And all of this is not just moralism that Paul is urging. Jesus came to live a life of godly righteousness that you could not live, that you would not live, that you had no desire to live. He died on the cross for you to take God's good judgment against us, those who were hell-bent on destroying what God actually loves. And he has come to rescue us from sin, raising us to new life that we might actually have the resurrection life that Jesus has, saving you from death and to life. So to live lives that are contrary to that, to live lives that are ungodly, that are unrighteous, that are unfaithful, that are unloving, contrary to that which, that which he has saved you from and to is to minimize and ignore what he has done. And it speaks lies to the world about the character of God and the power of the gospel. But then lastly, in this line of character qualities, Timothy is to also pursue gentleness. I think we can all think of pastors or leaders who are full of righteousness, full of godliness, full of faith, but then they can perhaps just kind of bulldoze themselves through situations and people. But on the flip side, the idea of gentleness that Paul is giving here to Timothy is not that of weakness. Maybe the best descriptor of gentleness, meekness even, is like a planet earth crocodile who has like the power to, in very slow motion, grab a drinking wildebeest, a huge animal, and drag it down to its very violent death. But then in the next scene, this same kind of strong and powerful crocodile, this mama crocodile carrying around an egg in her mouth. Power, and yet choosing for the good of those who are weaker to care for, to nurture, to provide for, to bring life to the weak. 
And this is the image of the pastor, shoot, probably for any Christian that we ought to be pursuing. Not being a pushover, not being a pansy. This is certainly not Jesus, is it? Jesus is not one without power. But Jesus, through his spirit, now his own people, he gives power and strength, but they do not use their power and strength the way that the world uses power and strength. We are to use our power and strength with gentleness, with care, with kindness, with provision, with bringing life. And this is the kind of life that Jesus models for us as the very life of God. And it is the life that Timothy is to pursue as a pastor and that we are to follow in, that we are to pursue, that we are to sprint toward, away from the, the example of the false teachers and toward the life of Christ. And how? Well, Paul says in verse 12, to fight the good fight of faith. This word fight is literally to struggle. Like, think of a Greco-Roman wrestler that you might see in the Olympics, right? Two, two guys that are on the ground grappling, struggling, trying to gain the upper hand in victory. Timothy, the man of God, is to fight for this kind of life through faith. He was told in chapter 1, in a very similar phrase, to wage the good warfare against false teaching, against false teachers. Here, he is to fight the good fight of faith. He is to fight not just the outside threats of false teachers that require warfare, but he is to fight the, the things in his own life internally. He is to flee from what will distract from the gospel in his own life, and he is to pursue that which will make the gospel look great. So if Netflix or certain shows or certain genres of entertainment are distracting you from the love of God and Christ, just flee them. If social media is taking so much time in our lives that you are not able to commit regular time of reading the Bible, of praying, of asking for God's help in your life, just flee them and pursue Christ. Fight in faith, like actually struggle. Consider whether your Instagram habits are worth it and then get on the mat and fight them. (laughs) In faith, that perhaps, you know, Pursuing Christ in his word this morning or this evening is actually better. I actually don't believe that right now. Social media is promising more joy to me right now, but I'm going to struggle in faith that I might gain the upper hand. If hanging with certain folks is causing you to love God less, flee them. If isolating yourself from your church family is causing you to doubt, is causing you to Uh, just come in on yourself in anxiety, even if it's hard, even if you don't want to fight the good fight of faith that God has made you to know others. He has made you to be known by others. And by fighting in faith, then you will, in the second half of verse 12, then he commands Paul or Timothy to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We've often thought through of, together of Paul's and Jesus' understanding of eternal life, not as just something that we kick up our feet for and we just twiddle our thumbs and wait on. Eternal life is not just a future reality, but it is a very present reality. It is something that here, is here now, that we are living in on a timeline in right now. So Paul, is, or Timothy, is to grab hold of it now in Christ, in his already eternal life. God has given Timothy faith. He has made a confession of faith in front of many witnesses, 
And he is to grab hold of that very confident faith and make it more of his own. This confession is likely different than the time that we have also seen uh, when the elders had placed their hands on Timothy and he received teaching gifts from the Spirit. This moment in time that Paul is referring to uh, relates to his very faith, relates to his eternal life. This moment is likely the moment of Timothy's baptism that Paul is reminding him of. This is a very important function of what baptism is as a past reminder of our present state and our future reality. The moment in time where perhaps Timothy made a similar confession of faith that uh, many of our folks will make next week in the presence of you all, many witnesses. Something like, uh, I am now trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to me. Something like, I intend with God's help to obey all of Jesus' commands and follow him in the fellowship of his church. Paul is saying, don't forget that. Remember that. Grab hold of it. Don't forget that. Grab hold of it now in the present until eternity. In and on into eternity. Not later when eternity arrives, but now. You are already in, in the midst of the timeline of your eternity. So grab hold of it now which now gets us to our middle section. First, the the present ministry of Timothy depends upon, second, the future appearance of Christ. In verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. So, Timothy, you are to keep on in your present ministry because it is the presence of God which gives life to all things and it, your life and ministry, are in the presence of Christ Jesus. Your life, your ministry, is in the very presence of God the Father and God the Son. We've talked about the Latin phrase of quorum Deo before together, before the face of God, that our entire lives are actually lived out, uncovered, before God. But how many of the minutes of our day is, actual, is that an actual felt reality? that God is watching and cares. If you've got kids and you use the the big questions catechism, that little yellow book that they're using down the hall, you know the question and answer of, "Can, can you see God? Every morning on our car ride to school, we ask that question together, and I, along with my kids, say, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. And that's not just a, all right, Kids, I want you to remember before you go to school today that God is watching you, so you better not screw up today, right? Uh, Like in a manipulative way of just fearing them into obedience to God. But because God actually sees and cares your life, and not just your actions, but your motives, how much more meaning does that give to our days? How much more meaning does that give to even the mundane things of sitting in math class? How much more meaning does that give to us as we file our taxes or as we fold laundry? God is watching. He sees. He cares. This gives meaning. Or even in the more memorably significant moments of when we're given an opportunity to speak clearly and rightly about the character of God, to choose holiness and love over sin and contempt. God sees, he cares, he 
He desires you to live for him, and he actually has given you the power to live for him. Paul shows us here that the triune God not only sees and cares, but has himself experienced temptation toward giving up, experienced temptation toward giving in. The triune God himself has experienced temptation toward a wrong confession, toward untruthfulness, toward a life of unrighteousness. When Jesus, in his incarnation himself, had temporary ease, temporary comfort, staring him right in the face at his trial, and he could have taken it. But instead, he did what Paul is urging Timothy to do, to fight the good fight of faith. Not in hitting back, but in receiving the blows and fists in steadfastness as an egg-carrying crocodile, carrying this egg of gentleness, power, and yet choosing in gentleness to live for his people, to die for his people, in faith in God's promises and for the joy set before him. In love, Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. And so Jesus' people now walk in Jesus' footsteps. And so when the world says, "Eh, doctrine doesn't really matter. Like, what God is, who he is, what you believe about God, what he's done, who you are as a human, how you can know him, how you can know what he requires, who Jesus is, what your response to him must be, we can just agree to disagree. It's not really that important. But here, Paul is saying, no, we can't. We can't agree to disagree. Doctrine matters. Paul says, I charge you, in verse 14, because God the Father is watching, because Jesus has given us a model in keeping the right confession, Timothy, keep the commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach. The commandment of upholding the purity of the gospel that Paul has given him over and over and over again in this letter, the faith, as he's called it in this letter, to keep it unstained, free from reproach, which is Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and it is the ministry of the church today. Like we've often said, in, in, a, in a wedding ring, no one really cares if one of the settings has a little nick or a little imperfection. Why? Because no one looks at the settings. The settings exist to display the beauty of the diamond. And we weak, we nicked and faded settings that we are, we unbeautiful and unworthy, yet we are called now to hold on to the diamond. Keep it displayed. Keep it as the center and keep it as the thing which draws attention. Hold fast. Keep it unstained and free from reproach. When the truthfulness of the Bible begins to be doubted or dismissed, a prong starts to lose its grip. The diamond gets a little wiggly. When Jesus becomes just a significant spiritual teacher with kind of extraordinary ways to give you more meaning in your life, but he is not the resurrected second person of the triune God through whom the universe has been created and who now presently upholds the universe by the word of his power, the diamond falls out. False doctrine is sneaky. It is sometimes hard to spot. It is sometimes difficult to identify. Comfort and ease, like they did with Jesus, will often and ongoingly stare you right in the face and sometimes even violently hit you. But Jesus is not asking you to do anything in your life that he has not already done first. 
He has lived as a model and example for us, yes, but then by his very life and by his spirit, he empowers his people as they are united by faith to him with his same divine power to look temptation in the face and say, get out of here. To say, you have no business here. You have no power here. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? My life is about the glory of Jesus and of his great love for me. But we don't stumble into that resolve. We're to keep fighting. We're to keep fleeing. We're to keep pursuing. We're to keep choosing joy. We're to keep acting in faith. We're to keep repenting when we fail. We're to keep responding in our own weakness and sin with the very strength and the holiness of Christ. So keep thinking about Jesus. Keep worshiping Jesus. Keep beholding Jesus until he comes, verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And then, like Paul can't stop himself. He starts talking about the appearance of Jesus, and then it's like this tornado of praise starts to slowly start building, and then it's building, and it's building. He started slowly, and then this tornado like launches him into the stratosphere of worship. When he starts to consider the reign and the rule of God the Father, his holiness and his glory, verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We should have just ended the letter there. We'll get back to that. But This God who alone is blessed, who is mighty, who is sovereign, who rules and reigns over all things, who is immortal like the sun because of its purifying and life-giving heat is unapproachable, too brightly and blindingly invisible. This, This same God who is unapproachable and blindingly invisible is the very God who has, chapter one, overflowed with grace and love to his crazy, rebellious creation. And he has made these these rebels who would overthrow him as the king of the universe into his very children to give them an inheritance forever. This God, unbelievable, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. So keep on, Timothy. Jesus is watching and he cares. In the very small details and in the very big events, he cares and he's watching and he's giving you the power to obey. He is giving you and he is present in in the very victories of your life and in the tragedies of your life. He is not aloof. He is not asleep. He is not unaware. He is invested in your life. More invested than you are in your life. He is invested to his very death. And he will return. It's a done deal, and he will make all things right and new. All the ways in which I fail in fleeing and pursuing, all the ways in which I fail in actually fighting in faith, these will be done away with forever. No more need to fight for joy in faith, because our faith is now made sight, and we will be made like him when we see him. Even so, praise the Lord, so my soul. And then the tornado, it starts to slow like the end of that wonderful, wonderful movie from the 90s, Twister. Things are, there's a little bit of, (laughs) you love it. Uh, Bill Paxson, man, he's the best. Uh, All right, we've got a little, we've got a little rest, and now it's like Paul has, it's like the end of Twister, and he looks around, and he's like, 
Uh, now where was I? Uh, and he's like, and then he starts to talk about money again, which seems really weird, like a hard left turn, doesn't it? At first glance, it doesn't seem like uh, money and possessions is something that naturally flows out of this tornado of praise, but it's all related. After encouraging Timothy first in his present ministry, which matters and finds its fulfillment, and second, his, the future appearing, appearing of Christ, now third, let's wrap up this letter with the future riches of God. In thinking about God, the one who, verse 13, gives life to all things, and then Paul being set back onto the ground and the wind has stopped, maybe he gathers his bearings and he's thinking, wait a minute, I remember what I was talking about just a few minutes ago about money and possessions, contentment in verses 6 through 10, the love of money being a root of many kinds of evil, and maybe he, after he's got a second to catch his breath, he's thinking, wait a minute, but there are, man, there's a lot of rich people in Ephesus, like undoubtedly many of whom he knew by name. Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the Mediterranean world, and many of them are apparently becoming Christians. So Paul might be thinking, I've had a second to gather my thoughts here, and I don't want them to think that I think that they are evil just because that they are rich. That maybe they think that I think that they are a root of evil within the church because of how God has materially blessed them or given to them these things. And that's the point. That God, who gives life to all things, in verse 13, is also the God, in verse 17, who provides all things for people to enjoy. If you weren't with us last summer when we spent several weeks uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, you might be able to go back and find those sermons on the website. But one important way that God allows us to love him and to worship him is actually by enjoying him through the gifts that he gives. These gifts will always tempt us to worship them over the giver, but with right perspective, with contentment, like we talked about last week, with thankfulness, it's possible, perhaps even divinely designed, for us to enjoy God even more through the things that he has given us. And so Paul says, remind our wealthier brothers and sisters there in the church, remind them, Timothy, not to set their hopes on their paychecks or their houses, Remind them not to set their hopes on their cars or their investments or their retirement funds. That's just stupid. There's no guarantee that any of that will be there tomorrow, much less a trillion years from now. That's just dumb. But it's not evil, and it is no sin to be wealthy, to have a lot. Why? Because God is the one who has given it. As long as that wealth is another one of the many means in which this person is to and is able to love God and to love his neighbor. Verse 13, 18, they are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. These wealthy Christians are to be generous and ready to share. I love this church a whole lot, and we are a small and young church coming from varying economic backgrounds, but I just wish that I was able to just like get up here and just share a laundry list of the ways in which we are providing for one another. Not just in the ways in which we're giving regularly to the life and ministry of this church, but the ways in which we're very really uh, living out the Acts 2 life of the early church in Jerusalem, that of all who believed were together and they had all things in common. That when a physical or a financial need comes up within the life of our body, it just gets met. 
Some folks who have an extra car or an extra room or an extra vacation spot or an extra Sunday morning or an extra hundred bucks, these things are given freely and with joy to those who are lacking. And I love it. But trusting in and acquiring more and more stuff will be a constant false god for us. It will constantly scream in our ears, feed me, feed me. And if we are not careful in considering the generous love of God through Christ, then we will not remain this generous with one another. We need the life of God to continue to shape us as the very family of God who cares and provides for one another. And for those who are rich, Paul tells Timothy to continue to warn them not to be haughty. We don't use this word very much. It's a good word, though. Haughty. I heard a a podcast this week that shows that most likely— Statistically speaking, uh, the most likely NBA players who are thrown out of NBA games are the superstars. Why? Some scrub who's like the 10th the guy off the bench, he's just grateful to be there. He's grateful to be playing. But the superstars, we all know them. <laughs> You've seen the highlights. Uh, the superstars are the ones that think a foul call does not get called on me. Do you know who I am? anonymous referee. (laughs) The rules do not apply to me. This is an injustice. Or the college admission scandal that's been ongoingly revealed over the past few weeks, that the rules do not apply to me. The rules do not apply to my family or to my children. Whatever I want to do, I can. And it's not only okay, but it is justifiably right because of how much money I have. Haughty. Surely the fictional Dr. Zhivago was right when he observed that wealth could itself create an illusion of genuine character and originality. That's really insightful. That wealth itself can create an illusion of genuine character and originality. Just because I am wealthy, this must mean that I deserve this wealth because of who I am and the contributions to society which I have made. Maybe, but probably not. God has given you everything that you have with you not deserving a penny. Many of us have brought ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We've pulled ourselves out of poverty and into wealth. But God has given you everything that you have, even if not just the actual pennies that you own. You had nothing to do with the parents that God gave you who had varying degrees or incredible or even lacking involvement in your life. You had nothing to do with the DNA or the intellectual firepower that you presently have. You perhaps had nothing to do with the undergraduate or graduate degrees that someone else in your life paid for. So instead of thinking, of course I should make this much, and of course I should have this much, what if you didn't? Like, not just your house burned down and all of the stuff that went with it, that would be a major bummer, right? But I think I'd honestly, it'd be sad, but I'd be okay if my house burned down. Why? Because I have homeowner's insurance and because I have a bank account, right? All of that's going to get replaced. Some of it is irreplaceable, but, you know, some photos or whatever, but most of them are on the cloud now anyway. It's not a big deal. But I mean, really, like, what if it went away? All of it. Like, you're in some post-apocalyptic movie. Like, I, whenever I watch these movies, I'm like, what if this was my life? What if I am living in the road or Mad Max, right? Would I still trust in God with nothing? 
What if another massive financial depression comes? Not just like a, a heavy, but uh, we, we got out of it recession of 2008. But I mean a massive, decade-long financial depression where you have no job, you have no income. Your house, the bank owns it. You have nothing. You are like many folks in our city. You are like many folks in our own church who for the first time in your life wonder how you're going to scrounge up enough food for you or your family tomorrow. Wondering if perhaps you're going to have to tell the kids tomorrow, hey, tomorrow's going to be a tough day. I know you're going to be hungry. We just have to go a day without. And I'm preaching all of this to myself. I've never had to unintentionally skip a meal in my life. I have a wonderful house and two cars. Crazy. My grandfather paid for my undergraduate education. I have much to be thankful for. And it is sure easy to say that you trust God when all of our bills are paid and we have enough left over to spend on some fun things as well. But would you trust him? Would I trust him in utter financial despair? Would I actually say with nothing, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, that I might actually with David be able to say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I might not eat tomorrow. I might not have enough for the rest of this week. I might lose the house, but whom have I in heaven but you? You are the strength, my strength and my portion forever. Lord, help us. And we might understand that everything that we have is a gift from God, however much and however little. And if we have much, then we also recognize this as a gift from God, that your things are not actually God. So however tempting it is to worship these things, do not worship them. Paul has already told us that money can be one of the most persuasive false gods that has the power to shipwreck your faith, to shipwreck and destroy your love for Christ. So we need this. We 21st century Americans in 2019 need to hear the warning that money has the power to ruin you, to shipwreck your faith, to kill your love for Christ. So in the same way that Paul has told Timothy to take hold of the eternal life that God has given him now, Timothy, take hold of it. Remember your confession and grab onto it. Don't let it go. Now, Paul tells the rich to take hold. Take hold instead of holding on to their stuff tightly with white knuckles. Their paychecks and their retirement funds and their cars and their houses. Don't hold on to those things. Let go of those things. And instead, take hold of the eternal life that is truly life. So work hard, everyone. We have extraordinary opportunities as Americans these days. Work hard, pursue education, pursue good jobs, work so hard that you actually get raises. But why? Not for just the materialistic pursuit of stuff in the American dream that those without the Spirit who work alongside you are also working for. We have something better. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, you are only truly rich if you have the riches of the inheritance which is to come. Of a, f- of a future treasure 
of peace, of the love of God, of joy and contentment forever, of no lack, of no need, of Christ forever. This is our hope and it's our future. It is to come and it is not contingent upon the American economy. It is not contingent upon the size of your retirement account. It is fixed and it is sure. So having tied up this last ribbon of a thread that he remembered that he wanted to tie up, then Paul repeats the exact same thing in verses 20 and 21. He repeats himself that he's said it just over and over and over again to Timothy, just in case. He like went off on this little thing on wealth and possessions and now he just, all right, I'm going to wrap this up to Timothy and I got to say what I've said so many times throughout this thing. He says, oh Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Like a mama crocodile, Timothy, guard this thing that has been given to you. Guard the deposit of the gospel of Christ that God has given you to preserve, to care for, to protect, to display. Don't get sucked up into conversations and debates that distract from that. Keep making the main thing the main thing. And then very interestingly, in, interestingly enough, Paul says, at the very end, he says, grace be with you. But what we don't see in our English Bibles is that that you is a plural you. Grace be with y'all, Paul says. It's a shame that English does not have a second person plural. So we, in the South, made it up because it was lacking, yes. But grace be with y'all which affirms our hunch that this letter was always meant to be read aloud to the Ephesian church. That this letter has broad implications and applications, not just for Timothy as a pastor, but for the entirety of the Ephesian church and for us today. So this is a plural you. It's a plural you. Grace be with you, Quinn. Jesus is watching you, and he cares. (laughs) I wasn't calling out Quinn there. It's for all of us. Haley, Jesus is not asleep at the wheel. He's not aloof. He watches, and he sees, and he cares. Danielle, Dave, Stephen, he is here. He is not just giving you a model. He has given you his very life and his power for us to walk in obedience to. Keep on. Fight. Struggle. Pursue. Protect the gospel. All of you. All of y'all. He will return. So everyone, Christ Church, make Jesus be big in your life. Every moment of it, make your life about his eternal light and glory. Make him be big in your life and in the life of our church until he finally appears, and he will make all of us finally and fully like him forever. And all of this with grace. Grace be with all of you as you do this. We're not going to do it well. Lord willing, we're going to do it better and better as we grow in maturity, but we need grace. Not just initial saving grace, but the undeserved kindness of God ongoingly given to all of us to actually obey to actually love one another, to actually live together as the family of God and to display the glory of the gospel together that we might actually walk 
individually and corporately together, and we might train in godliness, the life and character of God more and more seeping into the life and the character of his people. Maybe so. Maybe so. Let's pray. Oh God, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful and we are desperate for more of it. We see our weakness in our life. We see the ways in which we are not living in godliness. We see the ways in which we are not displaying the purity of the gospel, and we need your grace. You have been so kind to us. We beg you to continue in your kindness. Grow us even further into the family of God. Grow us as a church into the family of God who clearly displays your wisdom, your glory, your love, your saving power, your grace. Help us to trust you more. Help us to know you more. Help us to respond in faith. Help us to flee where we need to flee and to pursue even harder where we need to pursue. Oh God, we pray that you would keep us to the end. Give us the strength. Give us the grace that we might enter finally and fully into your rest and that the world might see your glory and your splendor through us. Oh God, we pray even now in the midst of all of these things, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and come soon, that our faith might be made sight, that you might appear, establish your kingdom forever, and reign and rule in justice and in love and in equity over our small lives and over the cosmos forever. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.